You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Good afternoon. It's uh, the second part of our mini-series across the room of our special series, Reliving the 2017-18 Champions League semi-final run. But we are stuck here at the group stage. We've just qualified as group winners, Roma winners of the group of death, Group C. And before we get into anything, Steve, have you, have you noticed we actually have goal commentary in our episodes now? It's taken us over 30 episodes, but we're here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely adds a, a nice touch. I'm looking forward to hearing them, you know, in their entirety, but I think it'll add a nice little touch, especially when, with these, you know, kind of nostalgic moments uh, of, you know, that this exciting run that Roma went on. Yeah, yeah. We, we are talking about a Roma Champions League semifinal campaign, and you should probably save those words because it's unlikely in my lifetime that I'll be able to say it again i say i say odds odds against unlikely not not impossible but unlikely uh most of all because champions league will probably change format or change mm-hmm. name uh, within the next few years so if you have any sort of memorabilia of this season i advise you just hang on to it for another five ten years you never know uh but yes as i said we are back in january february 2018 turn of the year and steve roma are stuttering in the league was talk a bit about Di Francesco because um, things have changed for Roma. They, uh, at the beginning of the season, they, they looked sharp. They looked like they were really containing opponents in their own half. Um, they looked like they they really could like win the ball, basically like uh, you know, some some Italian sites described some of their defending as maniacale, essentially like, just like playing like men possessed. But then you get through winter where Roma have really only the league to focus on and one cup tie against Torino. And I'll, I'll rattle off some of these results for you. We have, after the after group, group C was won, they went to Kievo. They relied on Patrick Schick to be their, their de facto sub for the day, their star for the day. And he, he came up drawing blanks. I remember he missed mm-hmm. a, a very easy chance from open range. Uh, nil-nil on a day. Roma held against uh, a, a bottom-of-the-table club. Uh, they bear, Roma then go and barely beat Cagliari 1-0, looking very relieved that they escaped with all three points. Then they lose and crash out in the cup to Torino the first time of asking, losing 2-1 at home. Uh, then they go away to just before Christmas and rack up their customary 1-0 loss against Juventus, where everyone you know, counts Roma as unlucky losers on the day. But uh, Roma just, uh, sorry, Juventus typically winning 1-0. Uh, then Roma draw at home to Sassuolo 1-1, lose to Atalanta at home 2-1, draw against Inter Milan away, 
Sampdoria a doubleheader because the the first league match against the Samp that season was delayed or called off because of a torrential rain. So that was moved and it was a, a doubleheader against Samp. And I, I remember, I remember that January week we uh, us optimists were talking about how we have two games against Samp to make up uh, ground in the league, but uh, that just didn't happen. First of all, Roma drew away one all and then lost at home uh, one nil, and then. Uh, a narrow, narrow one-nil uh, win away to Verona, but the the goal scorer on that day, who would then go on and score against Benevento, was a new name on the on the map. It was Cengiz Under. So, Steve, first of all, let's talk about Under later on. But what what exactly was going on with Roma at this point? Was, had, had the league just figured out Di Francesco's play, or, or was there something more behind this? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're well well familiar with these uh, kind of late December, January kind of swoons that Roma goes on. And this year was no different. Um, you know, you would have thought they would have built some momentum off of that terrific group stage they had defeating teams like Chelsea and, you know, finishing ahead of Atletico. And it, it just wasn't to be. And I just remember this season uh, that Roma was, you know, fairly sound defensively, but they they just could not put the ball in the net a lot of the time. They're, the finishing was, mm-hmm. they left a lot to be desired. You know, if I feel like if this current Roma side had the chances that this Roma team created, we'd, we'd be winning a lot more matches this season. Cause that this year we talk about not breaking sides down, uh, but looking back three years, this side put themselves in positions to score and just weren't scoring goals. And uh, that, that spelled mm. trouble. Does, does, does this current team actually create less than, than Di Francesco's first season? I, I'm not exactly feeling the numbers, but I know, I know that Roma, uh, in the middle of uh, January 2018, had, had the second highest team, uh, sorry, second second highest uh, uh, position in the league for expected goals created behind only Savi's Napoli at the time, uh, but only had, as Steve was saying, the sixth most prolific attack in the league for actual goals scored. Um, you know, their, their conversion rate was, it fell way below mm-hmm. the final season of Spalletti. And some people would put that down to the loss of Salah, um, some people would say that really just Roma weren't necessarily too well adapted to making um, De-, De Francesco's tactics work. So that by the time they got to the final third, they they were really just mentally exhausted from what you know the, the, what was expected of them in the in the build up play. Um, and then of course we have Kolarov down the left flank who worked as a as a get out of jail free card when he was fresh in in the autumn. But winter's a different story. The pitches get boggy. It's uh, more more physical work to be done. Um, and we saw that Di Francesco, that was the moment that Di Francesco chose to make a compromise with the players and restore Nangalan to, to somewhat of his former glory as a, a tricuatista in a 4-2-3-1 this time, moving away from the 4-3-3. Uh, was that a good move in your eyes, Steve? Did you, did you feel more reassured or, or was it just um, really like more of a superficial kind of compromise with the dressing room? I remember it being a bit surprising at the time in a way because he was known for his 4-3-3. Um, it's kind of ironic because now we look at pa- uh, Paulo Fonseca who came in known for his 4-2-3-1 and he's adjusted now <laughs> to the the 3-4-2-1 or you know, however you want to look at his current formation um, on a week-to-week basis. But it's interesting because two managers that we've had now in succession, you know, if you, if you discount Ranieri's spell as the interim guy yeah. um, that were thought to be married to their formation, both made changes. And then Di Francesco even went to that three-man back line in, in portions of this competition. Um, so a bit surprising. I mean, you know, it, you, I guess when things aren't working, you have to make changes. So you always have to give a manager credit when they'll try something new because you don't want to be too stagnant. I mean, as we'll see later on in this episode, that 
switch formation worked out against Shakhtar uh, to get Roma through the stage. So I guess in, in hindsight, this is, this was a good move because uh, it helped them get through the round of 16. Mm. And eventually the team did qualify for the champions league the following season too. So. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Objectives achieved. Objective achieved. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, But what do you make of Nangaland's form in that 17, 18 season? It was sort of like the beginning of his, uh, like, moving past his peak that he never really achieved ever again in his career, not even at Inter Milan. So what what was it? Was Nangaland uh, just, I don't don't know, explain it to me. Was he just in a different headspace or or did he just have a a a once-in-a-lifetime season back in in, under Spalletti the last year? Yeah, I mean, that season under Spalletti was just kind of out of this world, I, I think you have to say. You know, he still was solid under Di Francesco, but I, I just, I don't know if it was just the way he was utilized under uh, Spalletti or maybe the players around him playing off of players like Salah and, you know, Totti was still around and these other guys uh, maybe opened things up for him more. But, you know, we, we know that players can often have like these kind of once in a lifetime seasons um, that are hard to match. It doesn't mean that they haven't had other good seasons or other very good seasons like Nangalan. Um but it seems like from there things started to to fade a bit, I guess you could say um, overall. But so what, what what do you think is what do you feel is the like where's the peak like the peak of this Roma cycle in terms of like Nangalan, Strutman, uh, even even in, in, counting like names like Stella who were part of it but mm-hmm. you know left uh, midway. Well, where's the peak for you? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, looking back at 16-17 to have an 87-point season um, in Spalletti's last season, most years that wins you a Scudetto. You know, Juve was, uh, again, on another level finished with 91 points. But, you know, Roma won 28 matches that year. They scored 90 goals. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's crazy. Um, so yeah. it, it, if you look at like an overall season, I think you have to say 16-17 was the, the peak of the cycle just because they were so prolific and, and had such a great season from end to end. The Champions League um, was a great run that we're discussing in these, in these four episodes. But, uh, you know, the Champions League is also little snippets of a season where you get, you get a team at the right time or maybe you get lucky on your day uh, in a two-legged affair and then you can kind of get through. So I think you have to, I would personally lean toward the 16-17 season just because it was over 38 matches rather than, two matches in February against this team and then two in April against Barca or whatever the combination might've been. Um, yeah. that, that's why I would lean that way. That's fair enough. Let me, let me put it to you in a, from a different angle, but more or less the same question. Where do you feel, or I, I don't know if you felt this way, but was there ever a point where you felt like Roma had overdone it with the selling? Like, we know, we know that the club has to more or less like, like most clubs has to, give up a you know a, a good performer or a promising potential yeah player every every summer but was there ever at one point where you felt like they'd uh they'd, they'd handled the selling wrong and and like you know done the damage that was you know they'd make up they spend more time making up the damage that they've just done to themselves rather than actually building on something i mean if you look at individual player based on how they've replaced him i think allison is the the, the one that hurts in that regard um, but they also made 90 million euros off Allison. So you understand why they made that move when they did. I just wish they replaced him better because, you know, Roma have been a selling club over the last decade, at least in part yeah. of like a player here, player there. And then they do bring in other good talents, but it takes time to develop them sometimes. Um, but I think in terms of like a sale that hurt just because of the way it was done has to be the Salah sale. And I know their hand was forced a bit because I think they were up against a, uh, 
a kind of a time crunch and they had to make a certain amount of money by a certain time and Liverpool really ripped Romo off at that. Yeah. And and you had Salah coming to the club and saying, look, I've agreed the 25 million deal with Liverpool when mm-hmm. they just signed right here. You know, yeah. so they, they were left negotiating their way up from a very low price. Right. So between, you know, when you're selling him for like 25, 30 million, a guy that was as prolific as he was, and look, he led Liverpool to the Champions League title the next year yeah. or two years later, rather. Uh, yeah, well, the next year knocks Romer out and mm-hmm. reaches the final. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. He, he so, didn't yeah, celebrate yeah. his goals, though, you know, he didn't celebrate. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, that's worth, that's worth five mil right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what about, what about um, when the domestic form picks up? The 4th of February, we see a new name very early on in that, in that match away to Verona, the Bentigordi. Typically, a very difficult stadium to get a result in, on any, mm-hmm. any weekend. But uh, they unlocked this, that result with a guy who had a stunning left foot. And uh, he then went on to score against Benevento, uh, managed to cause a bit of controversy by doing a, a military salute in that Benevento match with his goals. Uh, and then, again, the next week, uh, scores away to Udinese with an absolutely rocket strike. Um, we're talking about Cengiz Under here. What, 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 what did, what were your feelings at that point? Were you, were you thinking like we've, we've got a talent here, or, or were you thinking that he's, he's got a left foot? I want to see more, more from him. Uh, I, I lean toward the latter. I thought he had some talent. You know, he was pacey, had a nice left foot, but, um, you know, he was very heavily relying on that left foot. I remember coming over. He also was coming from the Turkish second division uh, that, that season, his first with Roma. So. Uh, very unproven, very raw. I thought, you know, he could turn into a steal for Roma if he was developed properly. You know, looking back now, you know, he's over there on Leicester City on loan. Um, and, it, you know, he's kind of like at a crossroads of his career in a sense, because yes, he made a move to the Premier League, but it was, you know, a, a dry loan. There's no option to buy or obligation to buy from what I remember from that deal. And from what I've seen... Option, but- Option there's an option no option with no obligation yeah. that's right that that's what fell through the obligation fell through uh late in the the window and the summer yeah. but um from what i i checked the premier league box scores and i haven't really seen his name pop up too much in terms of goals i think he comes off the bench for that team uh good team yeah. they're in, i think second in the table heading into today so not like he's on a bad team sitting the bench but he's also not really scoring goals which is what i'm sure he was signed for over there is that is that a reflection of the player or the, well, it's going to be both? But is it more of a reflection of the player or the club in in Under's case? Because uh, I ask because I'm going to I'm going to defend Under here, but um, I I don't know how many players actually make the jump up from Serie A to Premier League and immediately become starters, unless you're mm-hmm. Mohamed Salah, of course. Yeah, uh, I think it's a combination. Um, I'm sure when Leicester bought him or brought him in on loan they kind of looked at him more as a, a depth option on the wing with potential to start. So I don't know if they were, you know, relying on him. I don't know Lester that well, um, but looking at their, you know, their results sitting, you know, third in the table after United won today, I just checked. Um, you know, I think some of it's gotta be on the player too, though, because the player's got to perform if he wants to earn playing time. You know, if you, yeah. if when you're given your opportunities off the bench, you don't perform uh, and you're on a good side with other options, they're not going to play you. You know, he's not on a team fighting relegation, lacking options. So, um, yeah, they're gunning for the title. They're, yeah. They're actually at the top of the table. Um, well, not right at the top, but they, they're, they're right. Yeah. They're about like behind the two Manchester's, I, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I asked him my own question because I was just thinking about it. And you know, Allison slots right into the Premier League and he's a starter. Mm-hmm. Salah slots right Salah. into the Premier League. He's a starter. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's more of a reflection on Unders. But and, and here, I, I, I just found I, a quote, Sean, actually from Brendan Rodgers just about a month ago in February. He said for, for Chango, which he calls Changis, 
Uh, it's just adaptations to premier league. He's shown moments of quality for us, but it's difficult for him because there are other players in his position that understand the premier league, but he's still a very important player for us. And the second part of the season, I think we'll see that having competition in the squad is really important for me. And he has that competition. I think he's really enjoying his time. So it seems like Rogers hasn't given up on him. Um, but he's, you know, stating facts that there's competition. Yep. Yep. Uh, he's going to rise to that competition. I, I personally felt like Jengis Under uh, was one of the most talented youths we signed in the last mm. decade. I, I rated him higher than most people probably did. I saw him in his last season under Fonseca, which is last year. He went away to uh, Cagliari and, you know, like, he, he got on the end of a pass. It was like a, he, he did a push and run where he got on the end of a ball, pushed it right past the carry defender with like, like the defender had like at least five yards head start on him and then they beat him to the ball, pushed it past him, dribbled inside past another carry defender and then smacked it onto the post with his left foot. Now, I saw Nicolas, Nicolas Agnolo do the same same thing um, towards the end of the season where it's a much far more open game where Roma are ahead on the scoreline and so the opposition is open and then Zaniel just runs down through defenders, counterattacks and smacks it in the goal. There's a difference. Uh, Zaniel's cause was under dozen, but under does it at nil-nil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I saw under in that in that same Cadet game uh, actually open up the, the side and, and provide an assist for someone, and then again uh, you know do the same move again like almost a solo run shot onto the bar and Clive gets on the rebound. Like, under was a real real threat against uh, mm-hmm. opponents that at all phases in the game. Uh, I saw him absolutely help us absolutely dominate Lazio in the Derby del Capitale last season as well. So you know at, at first when he was a uh, a young talent coming in under Di Francesco, yes, he just had his left foot as a calling card and not much else and was actually very, very bad in the defensive phase, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, didn't have much physique about him either. But then I saw him beef up over, over a couple of summers. Uh, I saw him actually start to use his technique to get around the opponents rather than make it a physical battle. Um, he stopped he stopped trying to like leave like 10 yards distance between him and and, and, an, and an opponent and stopped, stopped giving them a wide berth. He stopped being so afraid of the physical duel, but still beat players with technique um, and and started to develop a, a final through ball as well. Like he started to do really yeah. like snooker passes to yeah, to to free, feed his teammates for own goal. So he just looked like he was so close to becoming a very well-rounded attacker under Roma, but for some reason couldn't convince Fonseca to maybe because of the defending, but couldn't yeah, convince Fonseca. No, to... I, I thought he and Cloyvert would, uh, you know, certainly grow more under Fonseca and, you know, because Fonseca is known for his wing play and, and having that four, two, three, one, I thought they would have slotted in perfectly and look second season in charge for Fonseca and they're both out the, out the door. Um, mm. So both on loan, I'll be it, but it's sometimes it's hard to come back from those loans. So like when you look at him now, you know, a guy, and I'm looking at his stats in the premier league, uh, nine matches, only one start, 281 minutes so far, uh, just two assists for Lester. Where do you see him going from here? Because I don't know if Lester, you know, exercises that option. If he doesn't kind of really turn it on in the second half of the season, can you see him back in Rome or do you see him kind of turning into a journeyman and then finding a home like Boyan, uh, you know, did under Roma when he was kind of supposed to be the next big thing. I think it, it heavily depends. Uh, I'm just, this is just a guess off the top of my head because I don't know the next thing about Leicester. But if they make the Champions League this year, then they've got the money to, mm-hmm. to take that gamble on, on a guy like Under. 
um, and and make him a squad player. From what I've seen, the comments from both Rogers and Leicester fans uh, on YouTube under their matches, it's like they figured out that under is a guy that they want to bring on off the bench when, like we just talked about Zaniola, Roma, mm-hmm. bring bring him off the bench when uh, Leicester are heading games and use him uh, use his counter attacking potential, use his pace and use his his uh, you know his finishing the final third. So. It seems like they're they're more or less using him as a forward um, rather than like a out and out winger, and and that's honestly where I saw him uh, developing his game naturally at Roma. Eventually, had he had he been given the time here, yeah, like more as a uh, more like that what we like, brought in Patrick Schick for, you know, yeah, like, like playing that. off Jacko a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he can so do that, that with Vardy at Leicester. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So that that's why I see his natural progression going, but that that's obviously down to him and him being self-aware and really building on his game and, and adapting like he's supposed to. Yeah. And if, uh, you know, if you're listening, wondering why we're talking so heavily on Changi's under, there's a good reason. And Sean will lead us into that because Shakhtar loomed and he would have a big play to play against Shakhtar. So Sean, why don't you lead us into the Shakhtar background Matt, of that match? Yep, we're here to discuss the the knockout stage where Roma drawn the round of 16 against Shakhtar by virtue of winning their group. They managed to uh, pick up second place Shakhtar who moved uh, through their group uh, by basically knocking out Napoli, Mauritius Napoli, Mauritius Napoli to the Europa League, sorry, and uh, finished second behind Manchester City in their group, which was a a resounding win for Paolo Fonseca at the time. He who decided to don the mask of Zorro in his, uh, in his post-match press conference after beating, beating City twice in Group F and uh, qualifying. Um, that was actually a bit, a bit of a redemption for Fonseca because in his first season as uh, Shakhtar coach, he, he was knocked out in the Champions League qualifiers um, by, I believe it was a French club at the time or something like that. Oh, no, sorry, it was, it was by Young Boys, Swiss club. Mm. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, he had something to prove and he'd made the last 16. He, he was going to face Di Francesco's Roma. The last time Roma met Shakhtar in the Champions League before that 2018 clash was in 2010-2011, where the Ukrainian side actually beat Roma over both legs of the tie. They beat uh, Roma 3-2 away at the Olympico, and then when just when the press was speculating as to whether that Roma side could come back in Ukraine, uh, Shakhtar put paid to any of the, that notion and uh, beat Roma soundly 3-0 at home and 6-2 in aggregate. So... The ghost of Shakhtar loomed over Roma. And uh, we go into this game with um, really like wondering, what, is this like the perfect clash of styles, Steve? Because I mean, now that we know more about Fonseca, we can speak about it ret- retrospectively, but Shakhtar were known for um, doing good things with the ball and yeah. doing good things in possession, get it, getting like really c- crowding men around the ball so that they outnumber the opponent. And then you have Di Francesco's Roma on the other side, who are doing great at actually stealing the ball off their opponent and and you know using that as a as a way to use defense to to attack. So is that is it is it a, you know a juicy clash of styles coming up in this tie? Yeah, it it seemed like it going in that there would be a clash of styles because we know that Roma side was was very sound defensively in seventeen eighteen. Um, they only allowed thirty eight goals the whole season in Serie A, which was second bet. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's sixteen seventeen. Let me switch uh, tabs here. Uh, but they were a sound team defensively. Roma they only gave up. Uh, 28 goals against, which was second best in Serie A that season behind champions Juve, who gave up 24. So we know that Roma played very sound defensive football and Fonseca side was known for their attacking prowess. I mean, to beat City twice, you have to know what to do with the ball. 
Um, they had mm-hmm. that Brazilian flair. I remember. Uh, I remember yeah. not remembering knowing much about Shakhtar. Um, besides that, they would bring in a lot of Brazilian imports. You know, the guys that maybe didn't get noticed by the bigger leagues or the bigger clubs quite yet. Uh, and they would yeah. find a home in Shakhtar, and that's how Shakhtar kind of made their money uh, over that decade or so in the Champions League. And we see we see them still doing it now, still making. Yeah. Uh, the Champions League. Um, we'll get into them this year later in the episode, but they, they've been doing it for a while now. And I remember yeah. um, the first time we played them in 10-11, you know, that was kind of only a few years into my my Roma fandom, so to speak. And I was kind of naive and thinking, you know, Roma playing a team from Easy the win. Ukraine should have no problem <laughs> and being sick over the fact that we gave up six goals to a Ukrainian team. A bunch of bunch of bunch of competitors from Ukraine. Yeah. So this time when we went into it, I was I was definitely a bit more wary, especially considering the results that Shakhtar had in knocking out a, an Italian team like Napoli. Um, I was definitely more yeah. wary of what Fonseca's football would bring to the table. Yeah. And and as you said, there was one man on the radar of big European clubs that season. It was a Brazilian named Fred, mm-hmm. deep in the heart of the midfield. Uh, he was wanted by everyone and eventually earned a mega bucks move to manchester manchester united the summer of 2018 and then you had the brazilian brazilian trio of bernard tyson and marlos up front just tucked in behind um it was facundo ferreira so they kicked off in ukraine but uh steve talk us through that first leg because we we didn't actually really see roma playing on the counter we well actually we kind of did but it, it was a quite dominant opening 10-15 minutes and then a familiar name that we've just been talking about popped up with a goal yeah so it it turned out to be a very even match possession wise uh 53-47 in favor of Shakhtar um you know shots were pretty much even 15 apiece nine on target for Shakhtar eight for Roma but it was uh Cengiz Under who broke open the scoring in the 41st minute to give Roma the lead and it looked like Roma was in good shape from there so here we'll take a listen to the goal call this is Kolarov. Now it's Perotti. Dzeko. Cengiz Under. A most opportune moment for the Turkish youngster to register his first European goal. But then, you know, right before halftime, that goal came and Roma went into the, the half up a goal on the road. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. I remember watching this match uh, live. I don't always get to watch these matches live because I'm a school teacher and here in the States, they're usually on during the school day, but I was on my February break for this one. And uh, I just remember like getting excited about it. And then, you know, of course, Roma being Roma on the road, things got a little bit dicey in the second half. And it was, uh, you know, a man you just mentioned, not so long ago, Ferreira, who got in uh, behind the Roma defense and scored in the 52nd minute um, to to level the score. I, I know Ferreira well because I'm a Newcastle United fan, mm. and he was really bad. You, know, you talk about people who can't <laughs> adapt to the Premier League. He was really, really bad. So I, I'd written off Ferreira in my mind as the goal threat when we were facing Shakhtar, and then I see him like really just deep, beat Manolas with relative yeah. ease. Beat him, beat him and, for pace too. Which you know, Manolas is yeah. one of our our quicker defenders we've had in the last 10, 15 years in terms of a centre back. And yeah, yeah, he he got in behind and he beat Manolas uh, and then obviously beat Allison one-on-one. Um, but there was a big moment before anything else happened in about, it was around the 60th minute or so that Allison made a big, big save to keep Roma level. Um, and it would keep them in this match, um, even though they would eventually lose because Fred scored a lovely free kick in the 71st minute and it was a 2-1 loss for Roma. 
but that Allison save would come back big because this being a two-legged affair, it really kept Roma alive going into that second leg. Yeah. Um, uh, but w- 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 there was obviously someone else who came up with a, with a save um, right to death. I mean, we had that, that mm. bread free kick um, that, that we just talked about Fred. He, he, he put in a direct free kick. It took, it took a set piece to finally beat Allison. Um, clean, but then you know Shakhtar two on ahead at right the death, and uh, who 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 is it that actually saved Roma's bacon? It's not Allison, is it? Yeah, so Sean and I looked hard to to find a, a, a like a audio clip of this to to throw in here because it was such a big moment in the match. But I guess at the time when these YouTube videos were posted, nobody really thought much of it. But it was of all people, Bruno Perez with that toe save. Um, you know, we kind of jokingly call it Perez's golden toe because. And here was a big money signing by Roma who never really lived up to expectations, but in Roma lore, uh, without that toe save, we're not talking about Roma making the semifinals this season. So uh, that toe save at the death really also kept Roma in the matchup between the Allison save and the toe save. It could have been four one and Roma could have been done and dusted going into the Olympico. Mm-hmm. What about Bruno Perez? We've spoken about him, but what, what were your expectations of him in the middle of that season, I mean, we 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 talked about in previous episodes about him doing the whole coast to coast goal against Juve in the, in the Turin derby. Um, how that really put him over the top as a city our name, put him on Walter Sabatini's radar. We we mm-hmm. apparently supposedly beat clubs like Paris Saint Germain to his signature. Uh, paid over fifteen million for him, but by the time he's uh, playing in the back four under Di Francesco, what what are your expectations then? Are you, are you is what are your actual feelings, if you remember, about Bruno Perez and what do you felt like he was Roma's long-term solution or if he was just, you know, what, what was going on with him? Yeah, I don't remember exactly at the time. I know this was his second season. Can you refresh remember me? How was he at that first season under Spalletti? Was he at all good? He was mostly injured. That's I mean, right. He, That's he, right. Mm-hmm. He, would, he would fill in at left wide back uh, more than he would play right wide back. And then That's right. when he when he actually had a, a run at right wide back because Florenzi picked up a cruciate ligament injury, mm-hmm. uh, Perez was struggling with fitness and injuries himself. Yeah, that's right. And then the second, yeah, and I remember spending the big bucks and the injuries were a disappointment. And from what I remember, I I think at the time, you know, his his star was starting to fade by the time we got to the Shakhtar tie. Um, I don't think he inspired the most confidence playing in that right back position. Um, mm-hmm. So it was definitely a big moment for him. Be, and for Roma, I mean, I'm looking back at the stats now in 17-18, he only started uh, 13 matches for Roma in the league and he started five in the Champions League. So definitely not what yeah. you'd expect from a guy who we spent so much money on. Um, you know, and, av- and average player rating was not not the highest either, mid sixes or so. Let's not forget that we began that 17-18 season signing Rick Karsdorp right back. Yes. So it, it really seemed like Pettis' name number was up, but uh, Karsdorp also picked up a knee injury that you know, really saved Paris the bacon in terms of game time. Yeah, and I'm looking at his stats. He had no goals or no assists. And, it, okay, a right back doesn't generally score goals. I mean, we think of that coast-to-coast run against Juve, which really is, you know, the memory I have of him from Torino. Um, mm. But you would expect some assists from a right back, whipping in a couple crosses or, you know, sliding in some balls on the on the ground to Jekko or something. And he didn't have any of those. Um, so that definitely... Yeah was a disappointment for sure so so what what went wrong for him because we we know at Torino he played a, a variety of positions he didn't he barely ever played right back he didn't, mm-hmm. didn't play in the back four at Torino he played yep. either as a wing back in the back five or he played as, as a as a wide midfielder in the midfield 
Um, so he's really used for his offensive potential. And then at Rome, he's he signed for all the, well, for a relative, relatively big amount of money by Roma standards. Yeah, especially um, at that time. And is, yeah, and is, is expected to be uh, filling in defensive duties as well as attacking duties. So is, is that what went wrong? Or what was the off-the-pitch stuff with him, uh, you know, his lack of discipline and, and really just not, in his own words, not taking his career seriously enough? Was that the bigger factor? I think it was a combination of the two. Um, I definitely think he stood out more in Turin because he was playing in that kind of more wingback role like we see him playing this year when he does play. And he's been, you know, since last summer with the switch to the back three, I think he's been a serviceable player more than Roma expected um, when he came back from that loan. We all thought he was gone in January. He'd just be flipped somewhere else um, to finish out his Roma contract. And he's actually been a decent squad player for Roma now for what they spent on him at the time. Uh, you don't really want a, a squad player for 15 million euros for a right back at the time it was a, a pretty hefty sum. Um, yeah. So definitely hasn't lived up to the expectations, but I, I definitely think that the formation and playing more of a, a, a true right back role wasn't so suited to his style. You know, I'm even looking at his stats on, on Torino. you know, he racked up yellow cards, those two seasons where he was playing very well, eight cards in yeah. 14, 15, nine and in, in 15, 16 to go along with his, offensive skill set that he brought to the table so you could see there were some defensive liabilities to begin with um mm-hmm. you know and and when you're playing a back four rather than a wing back position they they come to light a lot more um you know yeah. because torino was a pretty defensively solid team up until you know this season or two seasons ago they, they were very solid <laughs> on defense uh that with yeah, that back different, three different story this season yeah <laughs> yeah well that's fair enough well we are talking about bruno perez because he was the guy who kept that score down to 2-1 away in Ukraine with the gift of his toe. He became known as Pierre Doro overnight, overnight sensation, Bruno Perez's golden foot. He really became a, a bit of a cult hero after that first leg. Um, wasn't exactly redemption, but nonetheless, it was, it was, yeah, it was needed, needed. Um, that someone, you know, Allison was the first to thank him when he was on the pitch that, that night. So, um, yeah, after, after the commercial break we're about to take, we'll be back with the second leg where Roma are in it with a chance that all they need is, is one goal or more and to keep shutting out Shakhtar at the other end to, to win this tie. Could they do it? Let's find out after this break. All right, we're back, and we're back at the Olympico with the second leg of the round of 16. Roma 2-1 down on aggregate against Paolo Fonseca's Shakhtar. Um, as we, we spoke about, First leg, it was a, a nervy ending, a nervy affair. But uh, Romo just, just needed to come up with uh, a goal and, and hoped to, that you know, Shakhtar wouldn't be a threat at the other end. Uh, did that turn out that way, Steve? Break, break down this match for us. L- luckily for Roma, it did. Um, but different, different style of play in this match for Roma because looking back, you know, I don't remember watching too much of them. I, I watched the match, but not you know, remembering bit by bit years later. Uh, but Roma only had 37% possession in this match. So certainly we're playing more of the counterattacking style. Allison actually did not have to make a save in this match, which speaks to how well Roma played defensively to keep Shakhtar off the board, did not even give them a sniff of that away goal, which would have been so crucial for Shakhtar after, you know, Roma got one of their own in Ukraine. And it was, uh, you know, deadlocked going into halftime. Roma was, you know, desperately seeking that goal. Couldn't find one in the first half. But in the 52nd minute, it was Edin Dzeko who was able to break the deadlock and put Roma up one nothing with a, a vital goal. So let's take a listen to that goal call here. 
Oh, he's in here. It's Dzeko. The goalkeeper has come. He's rolled it in. And Roma have the goal they so deeply craved. And they give thanks for it. Okay, and it was on a long ball that Dzeko scored that goal from Kevin Struman. And it was something that, uh, if you notice coming out of the locker room, Struman and Dzeko were actually discussing that kind of play coming out of the tunnel. And it only took six minutes for them to get that done. So they obviously saw something in Shakhtar's defense that they would be able to exploit on the counter. You know, we think of Dzeko maybe, now. Maybe they saw Odets and, and Rakitsky, the, the yeah. centre-backs at the time. That neither of them were very pacey, were they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither one. I was just going to say, we don't think of Dzeko being a, a pacey player, especially now, but yeah. he had enough pace in that moment to get in behind and and get the goal that would turn out to be exactly what Roma needed with the away goal rule. Roma got through on the 2-2 because they had the one away goal to none for Shakhtar. And, you know, credit to Di Francesco for game planning well again here. You know, he let his side concede possession, but did not let them uh, give up any real good chances. So one thing, you know, Di Francesco has had a rough time, you know, since this Champions League run in his career, but he did a great job in some of these matches in, in finding ways to get Roma set up properly to give them the chance to do these, you know, these kind of comeback so so to speak in the second leg so credit to him there and credit to Jekyll for finding the back of the net um, yeah I'm I'm a I'm a De Francesco fan more so for his work off the ball than on it um his his tactics on the ball were asking a lot of the front line I, I we may have gone through this in the first episode but essentially you know, they use the tactic of emptying the midfield and really drawing drawing markers away, using the midfielders to draw markers away from the center of the pitch so that the defense could play vertical balls up to the to the front three, especially to the to the forwards that are um the wide forwards that are flanking Jacko. And that's a lot to ask of young players like Genghis mm-hmm. Under. Um and at the time, I mean there was Shawari, uh, Perotti, Defrel, if you want, but also a young player, Patrick Schick. You know, it's it's a lot of responsibility to ask those young kids to really take those decisions of of uh, creating that that final play in the final third, and it just didn't work. But more more so, what really didn't work about Di Francesco's demands on the ball was that his players didn't necessarily understand or buy into uh, the way that you were meant to build out from the back. You had um, Di Francesco was heavily influenced by both uh, his time as, as a Roma player under Zednik Zeman and Fabio Capello somewhat as well, but also heavily influenced by how those two coaches used Francesco Totti as a wide left forward of, of sorts. Um, and when you're basing your your attacking football tactics around a player like Francesco Totti, I mean, you're, you're really gambling a lot on football talent that is hard to find, you know? Mm. Um, so you know, that, that was really one of the flaws about Di Francesco's football. Um, but one, one of the one of the, the mini tactics, mini instructions that he he stole from Zeman was that it was down to the the fullback to really let the teammates know what how they're gonna move up the pitch. So for example, if Kolarov or Florenzi chose to receive the ball with their wide foot, then the midfielder knew to, to run wide and try and attract the marker and just run sideways to clear out the middle of the pitch and let the wide forward move inside so that the fullback could find that direct ball to the wide forward. Uh, it's hard to describe by audio without a tactics board, but um, essentially what we're talking about is that the fullback played like a quarterback role where they're calling the plays, but they're calling it non-verbally by, by making the choice of which foot they choose to receive the ball. If they, choose, if they choose to receive it with their foot on the inside of the pitch, then the midfielder knows to come deep towards the fullback, and it's a totally different play whatsoever. But 
the long and short of this story was that Roma, we talked about having trouble scoring goals. They were, you know, they were maybe creating, but um, they just weren't very convincing as an attacking unit. But I rated Di Francesco highly for his work off the ball. The way that Roma defended in the 4-1, 4-1 was just, you know, when the players bought into that, especially in the second leg against Shakhtar, they looked like animals recovering the ball and really shutting out opponents. And, and like you said, Alisson not even having to make a single save mm-hmm. in that second leg against Shakhtar. You know, we, we, we went into that leg, or I went to that leg, hoping that we could keep Shakhtar just down to a goal and maybe score two at the other end and maybe take it to extra time or, or maybe, luckily, keep a clean sheet. We did more than keep a clean sheet. We, we, didn't, we didn't even let our keeper you know, earn his pay on that day. You could, yeah. Alisson could have pulled out a deck chair and just had a sandwich for 90 minutes. It would have made a difference. So I really I felt like, like you said, Di Francesco organized the team to defend in a really, um, a way that I never thought possible that you could that you could get a Roma team to do. I haven't seen it before and I haven't seen it since. Uh, I even saw him, um, people won't remember this match, but this was in 2019-18, the second season, which wasn't going so well under Di Francesco, but I saw De Rossi come back from injury uh, in his late 30s and he was flanked in the midfield free by a young Lorenzo Pellegrini one side and Nicolo Zaniolo on the other side. And they defended against Milan like just just seasoned professionals. You know, it, that was how well organized his defense was at the time. Um, so that's really what I what won me over with Di Francesco, but unfortunately the, the rest was a bit lacking. Um, as you said, we, we won this game 1-0, we won the tie on away goals. Uh, but Steve, I mean, despite the fact that um, eventually, like I said, Jekyll just kept beating Shakhtar's back line and Odets for pace and got Odets sent off because Odets was forced to pull him back as the last man on goal. Um, despite the fact that we saw Matteo Cancellieri, who some people remember uh, was sold to Verona summer as a ball boy that, that year, trying to wind up for Kundo Ferreira and getting shoved on the sidelines. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, despite, despite the, the little, like the, the very tense ending to this match, some people labeled this win lucky because remember one of the way goals. Yeah, but w- what, what is it about um, a collective performance like the second leg that people don't like as much as seeing Allison in the first leg make saves, make Hollywood saves for the camera, and uh, you know emerge as like the lone hero that day? What what what's the difference between the two? Is it just there's there's no is there not as much entertainment value in the second leg? Yeah, I think it comes down more to entertainment value. I, I think if you go through on away goals, you deserve to go through. The rule is if it's level and you score more on the road, which, you know, it statistically speaking, I'm sure it's harder to score on the road, which is why that that rule exists as a tiebreaker. Uh, I don't consider that luck. I, I consider that, um, you know, Roma was better in the second leg than the first leg, and they played a great defensive defensive match. I'm looking at the stats from that match. You know, Costas Manolas had eight clearances, Federico Fazio five, you know, Forenzi four interceptions, Manolas three. So, you know, they, they were all over the pitch, these defenders. Then you look at the midfield, De Rossi, five tackles, Strutman, three, Nangalon, two tackles, two interceptions. So they were just well-schooled in that match. Um, you yeah. know, like you said, EDF's defensive tactics, a lot of these, these matches were on point. Um, you know, mm-hmm. no, did Roma go and score the two or three goals you would like to see to, to have them hammer home the, the the result and, you know, go through like three, two or four, two. No, but I don't call it luck when you completely take a team out of the match and, and you play your game plan perfectly. Cause clearly 
Roma was looking to defend and spring a counter. And that's exactly what they did on the Jekko goal. They conceded mm-hmm. 63% possession, but no shots on goal. And we mentioned in the first episode, uh, it's not so much how much possession you have, but how you use it. And we've seen that with Roma this season and with other big teams this season in Serie A. It's a matter of striking at the right time. And that's exactly what Roma did. And, and they did they did their job well this match. So I wouldn't call it luck. Um, I would I would call it, you know, good execution from the team. Yeah. Would, would you, as a fan, uh, would you want to live through a game like that again? Or would you prefer it to, to happen differently in the end? I mean, it, it didn't, the defending didn't didn't just uh, stop at the defensive midfield. There's also Perotti with five tackles, mm-hmm. under of all people with five tackles. So it was really like all 11 men, apart from Jekyll being the shadow press as he normally is, um, really like tackling like animals. Would, would, do you find it entertainment in that? Or would you would you have preferred this leg to, to go differently? You know, uh, I prefer anytime Roma wins, really, especially in a, ma- in, in, a, in a competition like this, to be to be quite honest, you know, because, you know, Roma could go out and score three goals and give up four some matches in the past. You know, we don't I, I'd rather have that this one nothing win than like a Zeman style, uh, you know, let's just go all out attack and give up as many as we score and then you're out of the competition um, yeah. because Roma knew that an away goal would really hurt their chances um because they only got one of their own on the road and those away goals prove to be vital so often in these these kind of matches we even saw it in the next round against barcelona so uh i'm fine with this and you know what if allison doesn't have to get his his jersey dirty and it doesn't even have to be washed by the end of the match that's that's credit to the team you know because the the match is like you have the first one where he has to stand on his head or you need a bruno Pettis toe save to keep you in the tie uh to me those those are more nerve-wracking and in some ways more lucky the luck was really in the yeah. first leg, you know, yeah. Pérez being on his back and having his toe in the perfect position to, to keep <laughs> it at 2-1, to me, is much oh, more he, luck. He, he meant that. He meant yeah. that. He practiced that on the training pitch. <laughs> yeah, he, he was like, yeah, I know this guy's going to shoot it right here. But, yeah. you know, that that to me is the lucky part. If you want to say Roma was lucky at all in this tie, it has to be on that play more than any other. Is that is that such a thing as a, a comfortable watch of Roma in Europe? Or is it is it just... Like is is part of the entertainment of being a Roma fan the fact that it is nerve wracking? Yeah, I think that has to be part of the entertainment is the is the nerves. You know, not many fans of many teams can kind of cruise through a European fixture. Uh, you know, occasionally you get you get teams beat down other teams, and that happens. But I think most of the time in a, in a premier competition, an elite competition like the Champions League, where you're playing the best of the best, uh, you have to expect some nerve nervy moments and some tough moments for the team to get through. You know, you're going to have to fight through some adversity if you expect to make it far in this kind of competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Roma were the winners that day, and they reached the Champions League quarterfinals in 2018 for the first time since 2008. So a full decade had gone by, and Roma were on the cusp of making history. But of course, they were drawn in the next round against the mighty Barcelona. So that, for most people, was the end of the road right there. But we'll touch upon where that road leads to in episode three. For now, we're going to preview the match coming up this week, which is the reason that the, the inspiration behind this miniseries in the first place is Roma once again being drawn against one of Paolo Fonseca's former teams. We know Fonseca left that uh, round of 16 defeat against Roma and was uh, coaching Shakhtar for another season after that, but then left in the summer 2009 and found himself all the way at Trigoria. Um, what would inspire Roma to, to hire Paolo Fonseca? Let's talk a little bit about his history and how he was inspired to, um, or how he inspired Shakhtar to hire him as a coach. As we said, Shakhtar, um, he, he took them to 
where was it? He he was the man who Shakhtar saw fit to replace uh, Luchescu with after 12 years of Luchescu bringing in a, a very deliberate project that Steve mentioned of going to Brazil, scouting Brazilians, bringing them over to Ukraine of all places and building a team there to, to take on the traditional power of Dino Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, Paolo Fonseca was the coach of Braga during this time, and he actually led the, the, the Braga team to, um, it was a Europa League quarterfinal, uh, and, uh, and he, where he faced Shakhtar, and his Braga took a beating by Shakhtar, 6-1 on aggregate. But, you know, from that 6-1 loss, apparently the Shakhtar directors saw enough in Fonseca to say he's on that coach. So what, what does that say about Fonseca, the coach? Is it, is it the fact that he's, He's actually come to Roma, and we've seen, Steve, even this season, despite the results, he still manages to charm people with his, mm-hmm. either his football or his personality or his, his instructions. What, what is it that uh, gives Fonseca the edge? Yeah, I mean, he seems like a likable enough guy. Like you mentioned, he's got a, he seems to have a good personality. Um, you know, he's very well put together, handsome guy, and I, I think he can charm people. Um, and his football is good, too, for the most part. You know, we've seen times where Roma can get overrun just like Braga got overrun by Shakhtar in that match. Um, And those kind of results, you know, sometimes get really put under the microscope in Rome this season. But, you know, when you look at the overall development of the squad under him, considering the players at his his disposal, you know, most people would agree, unless they have something against Fonseca, that he is overachieving. Yes, the results against the big the big clubs hurt and that definitely is something he needs to try to figure out before the rest of the season goes by or you know whether it's in Serie A or if in the Europa League they get by Shakhtar and draw like a Manchester United or someone and they can get through that maybe that'll get the monkey off his back because that to me that's the only monkey still on his back is that beating the big clubs in a, in a match that matters because it's now been two seasons where he's kind of struggled in those matches but uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think you see what like someone like Tiago Pinto looks at and is like even though I didn't hire him I might want to keep this guy around because uh, he's developed some good, pl- he's developed players like Rick Karsdorp this year. You know, Karsdorp has really, has really shined under him. Um, he's mm. brought Spinazzola back from, from the dead, so to speak, because he was almost out the door last January. Um, among other players, Pellegrini's developed well, Mancini's developed well, Ivani, as we see, you know, his, his talent coming to fruition a bit. So in that regard too, he develops players, which is, uh, I think, important to why his Shakhtar was so good as well, um, because yeah. you take those talents from Brazil combine it with a good football mind that Fonseca seems to have, especially a good attacking football mind. Um, and that's why I hope he has another few seasons in Rome to really put it all together. Cause I think he really can. So I'll, I'll throw a quote at you about his, his time at Shakhtar in, in the preview, the build up to that, uh, that Roma game. Uh, we won't go back into that game, but this, this was a, a quote that seems relevant today from Sky. They were saying, uh, what comes out of Fonseca Shakhtar is a very fluid 4-2-3-1, uh, yes, where um, uh, players manage to play, exchange positions all over the pitch, but they never lose the structure of the team shape. Um, and they, they always look to attack and defend by keeping hold, uh, keeping control of the ball. Um, not only should that sound familiar, but Steve, is, is that, you know, do, do you like that, the fact that that is generally uh, like Fonseca's weapon on the pitch is, you know, like as he said, making uh, passable or even very good defenders out of Bruno Perez, Rick Carsdorp, people mm-hmm. who traditionally aren't necessarily like, you know, guys to stick their leg in and, and come out with, with the ball from a tackle, even though they can do that, but it's not really that what their preferred method of playing football is. But if you just get them to focus on 
um, holding onto the ball or clustering together as a group so that they, they crowd out the ball and win it back, then they look like you know, all-round good players. Um, is that you know, is, is being so focused on the ball something that you like about uh, a Roma team or is there another Roma team, different style that you prefer over Fonseca's? Yeah, I mean, I, I've enjoyed what I've seen so far under him. You know, like I said, we've had some disappointing losses, but a lot of those have come down to individual errors too, which we've discussed on some of our post-match podcasts where like against Lazio, Ibanez hurt us that match. You know, there, there's been times where Lopez has hurt us or Mirante has hurt us and uh, more Mirante this season and in some of those big matches when he played early on. So, it, it, you know, there is criticism of his football in those big matches, but I think for the most part, it's been good. And, you know, Roma's been in matches with Juve where it wasn't the football that you can really blame, but he's got room to grow as a manager as well. And I, I like what he does with the team. Um, if, mm-hmm. if defending in groups and doing those kind of things to win the ball back is what works for your players, then I think you're playing to your player strengths, which is important for any manager because um, certain players have to be, you know, played to their strengths. And we've seen it with Spinazzolo. We've seen it with Karsdorp, like you mentioned. Um We've seen improvements from Pellegrini defensively. That's not something he was known for before this season. So clearly whatever Fonseca is doing, even though he's more of an offensive mind or he's known as more of an offensive mind, is working defensively too. We know that Roma's XG, uh, at least heading into a couple weeks ago against, was the best XG against in the league. They weren't performing up to you know what they were expected to give up, unfortunately. But it just shows that they're defending well as a team if your, your XG is one of the lowest in the league in terms of defensive XG. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the guy who actually replaced uh, Fonseca at Shakhtar and, and how Shakhtar been doing in Fonseca's absence. Because if, if he's such a special coach and a special character, then you, you might think that Shakhtar has suffered. And right now, they're actually in relatively disappointing form in, in Ukraine by their own standards because uh, they're like about, uh, they're within three of Dinamo Kiev at the top of the league. But you've got to remember, these are the the four-time consecutive reigning champion Shakhtar Donetsk. So mm-hmm. being second at the table is not what they used to. Uh, they also crashed out of the Ukrainian Cup at the quarterfinal uh, to really like lower league opposition. So that was a major upset there. And the man who's at the helm of it all is Lucas Castro, another Portuguese coach, another guy who's performed similar heroics in the Portuguese league to um, to Fonseca's own uh, shenanigans with uh, Pacos de Ferreira back in the day, Braga winning a cup. We've been through that with Fonseca, but with Castro, he's never won any trophies in the Portuguese league, but he did get uh, Vitoria Sport Club, or the, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's they're called Vitoria de Camares, something like that. Um, sorry, I don't speak Portuguese. Uh, he took a, a, a club with a total squad value of 1.3 million pounds, barely a shade of a million pounds, took them to a fifth place finish in Europa League football um, in 2018-19, and then was hired by Shakhtar to replace Paolo Fonseca in 2019. What has he done with the club since then? Really just managed the status quo, just like Fonseca tried to shake things up and then eventually reverted to what Luchescu was asking of the players in Ukraine. Uh, so has Lucas Castro. There's um, the the really only the only thing that's changed uh, from Shakhtar from now from then till now is that they defend in a four one four one now off the ball as opposed to Fonseca's preferred defense of four four two back in the Shakhtar years. But uh, ultimately, the, the goals of their team and their play are still the same. They dominate the middle of the pitch. You see, uh, this is their wide forwards tuck in to make that cluster in the middle. They keep the wide forwards close together to the to the attacking midfielder. And 
they control the game by trying to keep hold of the ball um, and baiting the opponent to, to try and close them down out wide, which is otherwise known as the AS Roma team of 2019-20, Paolo Fonseca's first season, before they switched to 3-4-2-1. So, um, Steve, when, when you see a Shakhtar team lining up against this Thursday, uh, a team that has a couple of familiar faces in there, but they're a, a few years older now. Uh, you've got Marlos is still there, 32 years old in, in the attacking midfield. You've got Tyson still there, 33. He's really like the, the main star of the team. Uh, regretfully so, since he publicly bashed the Shakhtar last summer for refusing mm-hmm. to negotiate with AC Milan over his transfer to the Serie A. Uh, Shakhtar refused to accept anything below 30 million euros, which seemed uh, ambitious, to say the least. But um, uh, nonetheless, Tyson is still there. Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you personally feel about Roma's odds going into this week with those familiar faces that we've seen and, and beaten back you know, two years ago? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the health of, of our squad. I mean, we're, we're a little bit injury-ravaged right now, um, but luckily we're, we've gotten Smalling back, and we saw the difference that made uh, this morning against Genoa. It definitely tightened up the back line a bit. Um, we'll actually have three center backs available to us if Fonseca chooses to go away from Cristante and go with Kumbula. We'll see about that. Um, but, you know, Roma's going to have to find ways to score, which I think they, they can, but it's going to fall on Myral's shoulders, and he's been on a bit of a cold spell. Um, but the thing I, I look at when you, you know, break down Shakhtar, I see they like to take hold of the ball. It makes me wonder if Fonseca will be happy with playing that counterattacking football we've seen a lot from Roma this season in the league because that's been where Roma's been most successful. And I think with uh, Myral running off some of those uh, attacking players like Mkhitaryan, and if uh, it's depending if he goes Pellegrini high or, you know, El Shirari or Pedro, um, maybe Roma can hit them on the counterattack. I don't know how good they are defensively or not, but, um, you know, that could be a, a way for Roma to hit them on the break, you know, kind of play into their tactics a little bit, let them play with the ball, and maybe Roma can can spring the counter. Because, you know, I'm looking through some of their Champions League matches, and I don't know how Bruce Mönchengladbach plays, but they hammered Shakhtar 6 nothing and 4 nothing. Um, yeah, that, that's actually what cost Shakhtar uh, qualification to, to the Champions League knockout phases because they, yeah. they finished level on, on points with Gladbach in their group after drawing with Inter Milan twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 0-0. Uh, zero, zero. Yeah, beating Real Madrid twice in that group. And yet still Shakhtar didn't qualify because they, their goal difference and getting hammered by Gladbach in the direct head-to-head was just yeah. so bad. Yeah, I mean, they drew Inter 0-0 twice, so that shows they could play defensively, I guess, when they want to. Um, but at the, at the same token, I mean, Mönchengladbach just destroyed them twice. Um, 6 nothing on the road, 4 nothing at home. Both matches, Shakhtar had a slight edge in possession, which shows, you know, that hold-on-to-the-ball approach a bit. But, man, to give up six goals uh, at home, not something you expect from Shakhtar. And it's kind of surprising when they beat Real Madrid twice. So there's not much rhyme or reason to their results. I, it could come mm. down to style of play. I mean, maybe they fare better against certain styles than others. Yeah, I, I know that they've uh, replaced a few club stalwarts this year. There's, there's a young teenage keeper, uh, Trubin, who's now the, the first team regular, who's replaced Andre Piatov, who you know, faced us in back in 2018. Uh, he, Trubin was actually linked with a move to Lazio just this February. So uh, he's apparently one of the, the highly rated young talents. Among many, they have Dodo at right back. Uh, not the same Dodo who played for <laughs> Roma and then moved to Inter, a very different one. Uh, they have Mike Con, again, a different Mike Con who's playing defensive midfield for Shakhtar, 
but he alternates with a, a very highly rated youngster, Marcos Antonio, for that that position in the heart of midfield. And Marcos Antonio was actually linked with following Fonseca to a move to, to Roma last summer. Um, and that never came to fruition, but he's, he's very much on people's radars. Uh, and then there's Juno Moraes up front. Uh, did, did you at all catch this team's run to the semifinals last year, uh, Stephen, in Europa League, where they eventually lost to Inter? Because I did, I, and I, I think... Was, I think all I saw of them was against Inter because I tend to watch the Italian teams when they're, you know, and later in the yeah. competition and things like that. Yeah. Um, but also interesting, just to point out, I was just going through their six group stage matches in the Champions League. The only matches they controlled possession were the two matches they got hit the hardest um, by, okay. by Gladbach. They actually conceded possession both matches to Madrid despite winning both of them. And they were actually up 3 nothing in the first match to Madrid when they won 3-2. So they had both of those matches in pretty firm control. And then both 0-0 draws to Inter, um, they conceded about uh, 56, 57% possession. So it, it almost seems like they've fared better in the big matches when they've conceded possession and maybe struck on the counter. So that's something Rome will have to keep yeah. an eye on too. Yeah, so they might not, might not be ready to play into Roma's hands just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I, I did catch the game just before that Inter semi last year in, in the quarters of Europa League and one one kid I really love and I, I'd be perfectly okay with Roma signing him is their right forward, uh, Israeli Marcus Solomon. Solomon, uh, I believe, it was, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but he was just really, really good. Like He, he drew like, three or four players onto him at a time and would beat them uh, on the ball with a dribble and then pass into Marais and, and Shakhtar would score goals that way. So uh, Spinazzola and whoever plays on the left with him, whether it be Kumbula or who, who you know, come what may, maybe even Chris Smalling, uh, they have, in my opinion, a job on their hands keeping out Salomon more so than than Tyson. But both danger men for me in this game. And uh, let's not forget that, you know, for all the continuity, Roma have finally, finally enjoyed in their second season on the Fonseca by keeping players together. Uh, Shakhtar have enjoyed long-term continuity with a clear playing identity for this team for well over a decade. Um, you know, the, the leader at the heart of their players, Tyson, they haven't changed out their, their leading uh, dressing room leaders for, for a number of years now. Uh, they have a firm grasp of when to switch from a, an attacking 4-2-3-1 to a defensive 4-3-3 and close their shell mid-game, um, which is basically, you know, that's, that's the balance that ideally most teams seek in European knockout football, especially in knockout competition. You know, if you can, if you can, at will decide when you're going to attack in the phase of the game and then defend when you need to, then you've got a pretty good shot. And that probably is why uh, it reflects the, the, the ELO odds given before this match, where Roma are only in with a slight, really negligible edge, uh, according to the ELO rankings, where they, they're given a 51.8% chance of winning this tie uh, by the time it's done it's said and done in Ukraine, versus Shakhtar's 48.2%. So as far as the ELO rankings are concerned, this is on the knife edge. And then mm-hmm. let's not forget that ELO takes into account um, location. And we know that Shakhtar have the home advantage of playing in the second leg at home. And not only do they have that, but they have the advantage of their crowd being allowed to attend the game, whereas the Olympico will be empty. So that's going to be very, very tough in Roma. But Steve, despite that, every single bookie, in, uh, in the, as far as the gambling goes, makes Roma the favourites, at least in the first leg. Uh, the coming out this Thursday. What 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 are your feelings about this? Are you feeling confident, or or is there anything any doubts in your mind? I mean, 
I'd say the the win today helped a little bit with the confidence, uh, seeing that Roma has bounced back now with back-to-back wins after losing that match to Milan. Um, but, you know, there's there's always that danger, especially like I mentioned with the injuries, something could go wrong. We've seen the potential that Shakhtar has beating Real Madrid twice this year. I know uh, Madrid's not as good as they've been in past years, but they're still Madrid and they're still in second place, I'm pretty sure, in La Liga. Um so yeah, there's definitely some some worry there. I, I'm looking at the 538 um, probabilities, and they have a 50% chance of Roma winning this match, the first home leg. Um, mm-hmm. 26% to Shakhtar, 24% um, draw. And you know, currently, I mean, it'll it could fluctuate based on the result of the first leg. The second leg is is pretty much a dead heat at about 37% each, with a 25% chance of a draw. So it just shows how important yeah. it is for Roma to win the first leg. And we know yeah. this, and I think even more important would be to keep a clean sheet. If Roma can keep a clean sheet, I'll go into that second leg feeling pretty good, uh, you know, because then like a, a scoring draw gets you through if you keep a clean sheet. Um, mm. you know. uh, we'll see how Roma pl- com- comes out to play. I hope that Roma is not too passive. You know, I hope they come out with the right mentality because they are the bigger club and they are the home team. So um, how do you feel about it going in after, based on what's going on injury-wise, results-wise? I've I've mentioned it before, I think in the last episode or two episodes ago, I make us second favourites in this tie. I, I make Shakhtar the favourites, and I wouldn't be surprised if our Europa League journey ends here for a number of reasons. I'm not saying that we're the worst team, but looking at um, our priorities for the season, um, mm-hmm. I just I wouldn't be surprised if you know we end up tripping up in a, a cold away night in Ukraine. You know, I can certainly um, see it happening so, for sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm not confident about this tie overall. Uh, if if we get through, it would be a surprise for me. But uh, I'd be I'd be more than happy to be surprised. I think really it comes down to Henrik Mkhitaryan of all people mm-hmm. because um, at the end of the day, let's not forget that Roma do go into this match with the better players individually. Um, you know, Shakhtar are an impressive unit collectively, but Roma have the better interpreters of, of this particular style of play where you hold on to the ball, you bait you bait your opponent out wide, which Shakhtar like to do as well. You try and switch the ball from flank to flank and, and hit your opponent on the weak side. Um, you know, both Roma and Shakhtar like to do that. Uh, Mkhitaryan is, is probably the, the best interpreter of all styles of football out of all 22 men that will take the pitch. So really, if he comes up, turns up on form and, and uh, fully fit, then I feel more confident. But if he doesn't perform, then I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't, I'm not feeling that confident going to this Thursday. But like, like you said, the performance today against uh, Genoa, where Roma showed that they could actually see out a 1 0 lead, mm-hmm. that's important for knockout football. Yes. Yeah, you know, to do that. So that, that gives me more confidence. Yeah. And it, 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 you bring up Mikatarin, and, and there's another connection between Roma and Shakhtar right there. You know, that's where he really started mm-hmm. his career before he really burst onto the scene with Borussia Dortmund. Um, yeah. so you get that, that connection too. So not only is it a fun second connection, there's Mkhitaryan connection. And speaking of Mkhitaryan, I'm glad to see that he did not start today, uh, and that yeah. he played a limited role in the second half, because I think that's so important. And I think based on the way Roma lined up today, uh, not starting Spinazzola, not starting Mkhitaryan, uh, specifically, I think points to the fact that Fonseca is going to go for it in the first leg. Um, yes. And then maybe adjust from there. If things don't go so well, then maybe you focus more on resting bigger players next week at uh, next midweek match on the Thursday because you have Napoli looming on Sunday. But I think mm-hmm. with Mikatarian being rested, Spinazzola being rested, 
um, for sure. Those two, I think, and that points to Roma definitely going for it with their bigger players on uh, Thursday. Yeah, I agree. I agree. hundred um, percent. We, we forgot to mention one name, Alan Patrick. He's uh, Shakhtar's top scorer from midfield this year. He's a young player. Um, he's very impressive. So look out for him, but Steve, I know we'll, we'll be more focused on the Roma players. So who do you tip to shine this Thursday? And uh, yeah, if, if you can give us a prediction for the first, first leg, what, what do you see happening? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to tip Roma to win the first leg. Um, who knows what happens in Ukraine in the second leg? Part of me wants to say 1-0, but I'm going to go with a little more confidence. I'm going to say 2-0. I'm going uh, to put Mkhitaryan on the score sheet, and uh, hopefully Myral can keep up his Europa League form. I also look for, you know, I'm going to look at that back line and see. I think having Smalling back alongside him is going to make Mancini even better because there's that um, comfort level between those two from last season. And, you know, yeah. we, we've talked about Mancini many times and how he's kind of held the back line together. Now he gets his kind of partner in crime of, what they started out last season, very strong together. Yeah. Crockett and Tubbs. And then if it's Cristante or Kambula, whoever Fonseca throws out there as a third player has a little less pressure on them as well uh, with Smalling and Mancini there. Yeah. I just hope I don't see Smalling on the left side. I would understand if he did because there's there's Solomon out there on the right, but I I prefer Smalling through the middle. Yeah. Um, And that's what he did today. I was a little surprised that um, he did shift Cristante out wide. And I, I think that speaks to Cristante too. And, just how important mm-hmm. he's become as a squad player for Roma. He's, you know, now playing left center back besides just uh, the center of the back three to distribute the ball. Yeah. He's uh, really like saved Roma a lot of bills in terms of uh, having to find alternative players. Yeah. Can apparently fit in for everyone. Uh, so yeah, we're, I'm actually less optimistic than Steve. I'm going to go for one old draw with Shakhtar leaving the Olympico with that, that slight edge of having the away goal. Uh, but I'm more than happy to be proven wrong. We'll see on Thursday night. Uh, we, we definitely both agreed that Roma are definitely going all in in the first leg. They've you know, saved their powder uh, for, for Thursday night. So we'll see you after that game. Uh, looking forward to it. But until then, bye for now. 